0: Hey everybody, I'm Jay Worthy, and this is the podcast for anyone trying to inject some adventure, purpose, and balance into their lives. 28 Summers is all about living life adventurously, seizing the moment, and optimizing your life. And in this second season of 28 Summers, I'm building upon those messages from season one with the help of a series of incredible guests. My guest today is Graham Friend. Graham is an ultra runner, Ironman athlete, mountaineer, and entrepreneur. He's got such an interesting story from up in sticks and moving to Switzerland to open a ski school to qualifying for the Ironman World Championships in Kona and keeping a diary in Spanish every day since he was 18. This is a really interesting insight into the mind of an ultra athlete and what it takes to juggle this level of training with a busy work life, being a parent and a husband. Graham's a really great guy and I really enjoyed the discussion he's clearly determined and dedicated and he shares some great nuggets in here which I hope can help you as much as they've helped me as we all set our sights on bigger challenges Graham, welcome to the 28 Summers podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have you. My pleasure, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Good man. So let's get right in. So I want to start with your Instagram profile, because your Instagram profile kind of had me at hello, because it says uh, you're on a mission to prove that life begins at 50. And, um, you know, I'm a man in my mid 40s, and I've been committed to saying that I want to be fitter at 50 than I was at 30. Don't know whether that can happen, but that's my mission. And so, when I saw your Instagram profile, absolutely loved it. So, you know, where does that commitment and that determination come from, and and that that kind of notion of life beginning at fifty? Oh, that's a that's a Jay. That's a good 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 question. I, I, I was thinking about
1: motivation the other day, and but I think my motivation has not always come from a good place. Certainly, when I was younger, it was it was sort of driven by a sense of you know, imposter syndrome, if you like, and having feeling I have something to prove but over the years I think that's changed and now in my 50s I just get so much uh, so many payoffs so many benefits so much so much satisfaction from 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 projects that um you know really has become my way of life if you like so it's uh, it's it's not difficult for me to get motivated
0: that's nice you think you probably are you doing different things now or is it just that now you you see them differently? You have a different perspective on the on the challenges and the activities that you're doing?
1: I would say the, the, the answer to both of those questions is, is yes. It, it, it has changed my motivation and, and I'm doing slightly different things. I'm, I've always been uber competitive, hugely competitive as an individual. And I still, you know, when I sign up for an event, my usual position is, well, I just want to complete it. And then as soon as I get into the training and the planning and all the rest of it, that very quickly morphs into, you know, I want to compete and then then it's, I want to win. And it kind of goes like that. Um, but it is interesting as, I, as I'm getting older, I have a sense that I'm moving away from wanting to win and wanting to compete more towards experiences and expeditions and, and projects which don't, which have less of a competitive element, but it is shifting. But then... You know i can't help myself even even um even when i sign up for an event that can't possibly could be competitive i find a way of, of competing with other people and, and so on so
0: but it sounds like that's very much in your dna were you super competitive as a as a child I, I don't remember being particularly competitive i mean i came to sport relatively late in
1: life My my family always encouraged me to do sport I played a bit of tennis and I did a bit of judo, but I don't think it was until I got to uh, to college and found rowing that I started to get really competitive. And then it's just sort of grown from
0: from there, really. I would say Uh, that's awesome. And so, but now you. So, where did you grow up? Whereabouts in the UK? were you from? I was in in Guildford in Surrey, so just
1: in the sort of southwest of London.
0: Yeah, pretty close to me. I'm in Wokingham in Berkshire, so that's a similar part of the world. Beautiful part of the world. And so how did you find yourself uh, living in Switzerland? Oh, well, that's a good question. We have to go back quite a long way. We
1: probably have to go back about 17 years. And I was uh, on holiday in Whistler in Canada. And um, I was skiing there. And I signed up for a program called Extremely Canadian. And And I found myself on this course standing above a cliff with these big fat skis strapped to my feet. And I had this instructor next to me, a guy called Felix. Now, this is, he's a classic, good-looking, handsome, amazing skier, Canadian instructor, like a super cool guy. And he said to me, Graham, just launch yourself off the cliff. Keep your hands forward. There's so much snow. You're not going to hurt yourself. Just go for it. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I, what am I doing here? But I launched myself into, this, um, into the abyss, into the, into the void. and I landed in this pile of powder and amazingly, sort of skied out for my first cliff drop, and the adrenaline rush was off the scale. And in that moment, I thought, there is nothing like this in Europe. And I said to Felix, the guy, I said, look, we should set up a ski school in Europe. And I was kind of partly joking. And he said, yeah, that's actually not a bad idea. And two years later, our ski school in Verbier, Powder Extreme, was launched. So that uh, chance conversation, that chance ski lesson, um, led us to set up a ski school, and then that built us a, built a relationship with Verbier in the mountains here. We created friends and so on. And I think, like many families, we were living in London. we just had our son. In the, the, our garden was the size of a you know a, a small picnic table, and you know my wife, Katie, who you know, um, was brought up on a farm in Scotland. I love the countryside. We 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 thought this is child cruelty, bringing up a kid in, in central London. So we were going to move, um, and we were going to go to Scotland. And I've been going up and down looking for houses and so on because my wife's Scottish. And um, my wife, I think, just simply got fed up with you know all this sort of looking around in Scotland and so on. I came back from another visit, another failed trip, and she said, "Listen, I've rented us a chalet in in Switzerland." Let's um let's go and do a season. And I went, Oh, okay, that sounds awesome. And uh, we, we came out for 18 months. And I think after about three weeks, we were sitting down for dinner, and we said, We're not going home, are we? And she said, No, we're not. And that was about 11, 12 years
0: ago. What was the draw with the lifestyle? I mean, obviously the skiing, but but was there were there other aspects to to Swiss life that just that just landed really nicely with you guys?
1: Yeah, I mean Switzerland works. I mean, that's the verb. Switzerland as a country just works. Um, the trains work, the medical system works, the shops work. I mean, it's a little bit like being back in the 50, you know, 50s in England, I suspect. You know, it's quite old, old-fashioned. You know, you're not allowed to cut the lawn or put out your laundry or make noise on a Sunday. All of the shops close at lunchtime, all at different times, so you can literally you know, not achieve anything during lunch. Uh, so it, it's it's very old-fashioned in that regard, but you know we live in a we live on the side of the Swiss Alps. You know I'm looking out of my window now at you know snow-capped peaks and forests, and we're in a small little community with a lot of expats where everybody just lives for their sport and lives for their adventure. So I think it, for me it's really the combination of an uh, the most amazing adventure playground you can ever possibly imagine, plus. A community of people who are always up for a challenge and so i think that's the two major appeals and plus as an environment for bringing up a child you know our kids are growing up bilingual they've been skiing since the age of four and you know they disappear into the forest to go and build dens god knows what they do you know we don't see them for hours and um we just hope they're okay
0: i think it's amazing and and what a what a remarkable gift to give your uh to give your kids as well, what an incredible, even if they, you know, go back to the UK and live there as adults, what what a great childhood and upbringing they'll have had in Switzerland. I think that's fantastic. So I was chatting to a, a mutual acquaintance or mutual friend of ours, Jonas, the other day, and he told me a story about his first training session with you, uh, where he thought he was going to turn up and because you're a, a bit older than him, he was going to be able to just compete pretty well with you. And you you kind of left him for dust because you were in this uh, insane... Uh, athlete and and I'm sure that you'll be you know you're probably very humble about this sort of thing but um but it's clear to me based on all the accounts Katie and jonas and, and others that you're a pretty serious athlete, Graham. So I'm curious to know how how do you fit that all in because you're a dad, you're a husband, you're a businessman. Um, how do you how do you fit all this all this training in it's it's hard.
1: I, I think having a having a very understanding wife is a, is a, is a is a is a really good starting point uh so that's that's one thing i mean i effectively run my own business i have my own own firm so that gives me a lot more flexibility as well but uh the other thing that i think makes things possible for me is that i'm just incredibly organized i just live my life in a very disciplined regimented organized way where i try and get every single you know moment of you know fun pleasure satisfaction training or whatever out of every second of every day I, I i don't have a lot of downtime
0: and is that um i mean it's obviously very deliberate is that mapped out you know i'm looking here at my board on the wall and i tend to write you know my week week ahead are you are you down to the minutiae of detail like that yeah I, I yes it very much so i mean i have i have
1: i have a 10-year plan if you like so i i've set out what i want to achieve over the next 10 years and then. From that, I kind of work backwards to say, okay, well, what does my, you know, what does the the preparation for those projects look like? And then I'm down to, um, you know, week by week planning. And then I even, sh- I schedule all of my activities into my calendar so that, you know, I know that at, you know, 11 o'clock today, I have to go and do uh, whatever run it is. So, I yeah, it, my, my life my projects are scheduled right down to the to the to the
0: minute and, and i'm curious to know so often when when people are kind of that regimented um if if something gets in the way and stops you getting out on that training session that you had scheduled what do you what do you like are you pretty relaxed about it these days or are you still pretty fanatical about missing those sessions
1: yeah i i'm it's still yeah i, I still feel pretty stressed when when things get in the way of my training but definitely now I'm much better able to deal with it, and I can readjust, flex, you know, flex the timetable. So I, yeah, I, I have become more flexible as I, as I've got older. Um, but I'm, and and I I have to remind myself sometimes that I'm not a professional athlete, and that you know I don't have to really kill myself, and provided there's been a, a solid enough block of training. I, I'm, I'm usually okay, but yeah, I, I I don't like my plans being changed. Definitely not.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I uh, I, sh- I probably should ask Katie what you like to live with if you miss a training session rather than ask you. What is a What is a typical day, a training day or, or or day structure in general look like for you? What kind of time are you up in the morning? What's your morning routine like?
1: I've I've well, I've learned. I think it's useful to learn. You know, when when are you most effective? And I'm definitely a mornings mornings person. So my, I will typically get up, depending on the adventure, depending on the day, depending on the training requirements, anywhere from, or or work for that matter, anywhere from between, say, between 4 and 6 o'clock in the morning. So I typically wake up between 4 and 6 a.m. If it's a typical day during winter, I might go ski touring, skinning. This is when you put the sort of the full seal skins on your skis and you ski uphill, fantastic aerobic workout. I would normally get on the, the first lift, the first bubble at sort of quarter to seven. Um, and while I'm going up in the bubble, I try not to lose any time. I do my Duolingo French. So I do my French practice in the bubble all the way up. So I, I get that out of the way. Then I train for an hour, hour and, a, hour and a half. Then I come back. I usually have my sort of, you know, second breakfast. I then pretty much work up until lunch. Then I have lunch with the kids. And then there's usually a second training session. I'd usually try and schedule that straight after lunch. And then I work again till the till the till the evening. And um, sometimes I'll do a third session, maybe strength and conditioning, although I'm really bad at disciplining myself on my strength and conditioning. Do that sort of after supper. And then it's sort of family time. Kids go to bed, the late oldest at 8:30. And to be honest, sometimes I'm in bed before the children. So it's it's a little bit little bit embarrassing, but because I'm just hopeless after about eight, seven, eight, eight o'clock. And so I, 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 lo- I like to be asleep before 10 a.m., 10 p.m., but um, often um, it's usually a bit later than that. But then I, I head for bed. I, I, I write a diary. So I write my diary um, and then I try and read uh, a book. And I usually manage about one paragraph and then I'm asleep.
0: So that's the, that's my that's my typical day. Well, you're definitely further up the uh, the athletic spectrum than me, but I um, but I, I do think that we're to a certain extent we're kindred spirits because uh, and I'm, I was smiling away because I like to rise early and my wife always laughs at me because I'm you know falling asleep at the end of the night uh, just about well before the kids. To your point, so uh, I, I absolutely I absolutely get that. So you mentioned strength and conditioning, so that's maybe one aspect of your training that uh, that is that is harder for you uh to to kind of get in into your schedule so what, what do you do to try and make sure that 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 continues to be a priority if that's an area you want to work on yeah
1: it's i don't know i i, I don't know why i
0: you know get getting ready and heading out
1: for a four or five hour bike ride or skin or ski tour that's easy but finding 30 minutes to do my strength and conditioning uh, i don't know why it's so difficult um so what do i do i i, I try to Take away all of the things that might prevent me from doing it, so I, I get out. You know the, the relatively small amount of equipment that I use. I, I I do it in the house in a nice sort of warm environment, so it's not stressful. Um, I guess, yeah. I, I and I, and I have a list of sessions, and I try and tick them off. But I don't know they, they, for some reason that's my that's my Achilles' heel. I just find it so hard to get motivated. I don't I don't know why. Everything else I can be really concerned about, but
0: that I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 interesting to know though, because I think that's true of everybody, right? It dep- and, and I wonder whether it has to do with your uh, your kind of base conditioning that comes when you're younger. Because I find gearing myself up for a, a strength. I used to play rugby, so gearing myself up for a strength workout or rugby training is, it, I you know, I would find easy, but. I've started to do more and more endurance events over the last few years and gearing myself up for what you would say is a, you know, a big three or four hour session that that's more, more complex for me. I have to think about that more. I have to motivate myself more. I have to get myself in the right headspace to go out there and, you know, be in that space for three to four hours, whereas jumping in the gym for a quick 60 minute blast.
1: Yeah, that sort of, yeah, young, early conditioning may well make a difference. I mean, I've been into endurance sport since since well, since rowing, since, since my twenties and okay, there was strength and conditioning involved with the rowing, but um, yeah, the the conditioning is there. Uh, I don't know. I need to be more disciplined. I need to, I need to get on top.
0: Yeah. And it's funny as well, because without knowing you too well, but the way that you've articulated your kind of organized regimented mindset, in a way, strength training is perfectly suited to that because, you know, if you really do strength training as a, you know, semi-professional athlete or somebody who's a serious athlete like you, then it's it's about the numbers. It's all about the numbers. It's like, you know, the, the amount of reps, the amount of weight, the amount of rest that you have, the periodization of your program, it's very mathematical. And, and a lot of people just jump in and they do their strength training. They just do a bit every time. But if you actually really structure it scientifically, I think knowing a little bit about your personality, you could probably get lost in it if you approached it that way.
1: Yeah, possibly, possibly. I tell you when I tell you when I was disciplined was when I was um, trying to qualify for the Ironman World Championships in Kona, and I used to say to myself, "Look, Graham, everybody's going to have a nice bike. Everybody's going to have you know decent kit. Everybody's going to have a training plan, and everybody's going to do the do do the hours. So, you know, where do I find find my edge?" And I said, "Well, you know." Probably most people will be doing some, some sort of strength and conditioning, so I definitely need to, to do that. So I, I, I knew that if I didn't do the strength and conditioning, I would be putting myself at a disadvantage. So I kind of assumed that everybody would be doing those three things, and I, I was motivated to do my strength and conditioning then. But I thought, where's, where's my edge going to, to, to come from? What, what, else, uh, what else can I do to give, give me that edge? And the two things that I focused on, which I think maybe others probably may not have done... Is I really focused on nutrition and my diets because I think not everybody eats eats well, and and I also focused on my mental game, sort of the sports psychology, um, you know, mental toughness. So I, you know, there were five elements to my prep for for Kona that um, I hoped would would give me the edge. And did you make you made it to Kona? Did you? And I made it, and I, and I made it to Kona. Yeah, that's amazing. So I was. Uh, I was, yeah. Although only by the skin of my teeth, because I, I, I became obsessed with my race weight. And I, when I was living in London and just pumping iron, because um, I, you know, I had a job. I couldn't train. I just did bodybuilding sort of thing. And I was like eighty. I was up to about eighty-five kilos. And I'm one hundred and seventy-four centimeters, five foot eight. So I'm not a, a big, big, big guy. So I was, I was, you know, pretty built. Um, and then of course you transition to endurance sports and all of that muscle bulk is absolutely no use to you whatsoever. So I lost, I lost close to 20% of my body weight. I, I literally transformed my body, um, into more of an endurance athlete. And I was obsessed for Kona of racing at 67 kilos. I thought 67 kilos would be my ideal weight. And so on race day, Um, This is how obsessed obsessed I was. I actually brought my own set of scales to the race venue so that I could weigh myself on that morning. And I was bang on 67 67 kilograms. And I thought, this is fantastic. Um, But I didn't want to go above that. So I said, right, okay, I'm not going to drink anything because if I take on any fluids, I'm going to go above my 67 kilos because I was so focused on the 67 thing. So the race started and I I, I came out of the swim and because I hadn't drunk any, any fluid, I was already starting to cramp up after the swim. And I thought, oh, my God, Graham, you've been the most enormous idiot. You've totally lost focus on the big picture. So I went into the bike dehydrating. Of course, it was impossible to then effectively rehydrate. Um, but I somehow managed to get through the, the bike stage. You know, And it's 180 kilometers in an Ironman race. So it's, it's, a long, it's a long day on the bike. And then, of course, you've got a marathon to deal with. And the course was quite hilly. And so literally every time I hit a hill, for, I don't know why, but my legs would just sort of go into spasm in terms of the most excruciating pain. And I'd just have to sort of force myself, run through that. And I thought I'd blown my chances. Um, but Katie was supporting me and she said, you're, uh, you know, you've, you've." And I think on the first lap she said you were 13th and then suddenly I was 7th and then suddenly, suddenly I was in contention again. So I, I said to myself on the last lap, I've got to, it's 10K. I've got to just bury myself and you may have a chance. So I, I killed myself on that last lap. I came over the finish, finishing line and um, unbelievably, the, literally the moment I crossed that finishing line, my entire bos- body went into like spasm and cramps. I had to go straight to the medical tent and they actually... Um, I actually got hospitalised. They put me in. Um, they put me in an ambulance. They took me to hospital. Um, they they put in a, a, a drip to try and rehydrate me. But because my veins had all collapsed, um, you know, they were really struggling to get the to get the get the needle in. So I found myself in hospital. Um, and I was still feeling terrible, even though I had this drip in. And I was looking at this thing, the drip. You know, the the the, ba- the bag, and it wasn't dripping. And I said to the doctor, shouldn't that be dripping? And that's why they call it a drip. And he said, let me have a look. And, and because my veins had collapsed, they'd actually bent, bent the needle trying to get it in. So no fluid had, had got in. So they said, okay, well, we need to sort this out. So they put two more drips in. And they said, what, what we're going to do is we're literally going to squeeze the bag and that's going to force the fluid into your arm. So literally they said we can get like they said to me, they said we can get like two liters of fluid into somebody in about five minutes. So they were literally squeezing this, this fluid into me. They kept me in overnight, but the way it works with, with Kona is that the following day after the race, there's the um the results and the drawdown. And if you are not there with your credit card to pay your entry fee if you've been assigned a place, that's it. Your your chances of going to Kona are gone. So I actually had to uh, discharge myself from the hospital the following morning. They wanted to keep me in longer, and I said, "No, sorry, I have to be at the the, the awards because I have to get my my Kona place." So I kind of uh, discharged myself, much to the doctor's um, despair,
0: and uh, went to Kona. And and thank God, I managed to get my place. Wow! What an amazing story. And so, I mean, triathlon is that a Is that one of your passions is that one of your favorite sports or have you moved on to other sports since then because i know you did marathon disabler as well right i have moved on because i i
1: pretty much achieved everything in triathlon that i i'd set out to achieve so i i managed to qualify for the british the, the great britain age group team so i went to the world championships i went to the european championships And then I went to sort of the mecca of triathlon. I went to Kona, Hawaii, and competed in the world championships. And, you know, I knew that, you know, I was good, but I just don't have the physiology. And, you know, I probably don't have the swimming technique to ever get myself onto the podium, which would have been the next sort of step. You know, there's qualifying and competing. And then you know, the next step is trying to get onto the podium. And I knew that even if I trained like a, an entire pro, I just didn't, I would just never make it. And so, you know, I had to basically say, right, that's it for, for triathlon. I've achieved what I set out to achieve. Let's move on and look at other adventures. And that's how I started to get into, you know, the multi-stage ultra endurance events, which, which are just fantastic it's a whole new experience but you know brilliant in an entirely different set of ways
0: but i can imagine that kona uh, and all of the work that you did to get to kona prepared you well because those multi stage events it's a uh, i mean obviously you need to be physically very fit but there's a lot of mental kind of fortitude and resilience that's needed to make it through those right so so um what was next after kona was it straight into something like marathon desablere or did you do did you gradually build towards that
1: uh, no, I, it, yeah, no, it was, it was Marathon du it, i I was on Facebook and I saw a friend of mine posted some pictures of her visit to Marathon du Sable And I just thought, that sounds like an amazingly cool thing to do. If you're going to do an ultra multi-stage event, why not do the biggest, toughest one on the planet? So I, I, um, I signed up and, uh, and was accepted because I think we, we came in through the European website in, in the It's so popular in the UK that there's often a waiting list and a lottery. But and I, so I signed I signed up online, not expecting necessarily to get a place. And ping, this message came up saying you are registered for the marathon des Sable. I thought, oh my god, what have I done?
0: Um, and so then I had to start sort of prepping and, and planning for that. And was that uh, in? Typical Graham style, as you've just articulated, was it straight into the detail and prepare wanting to compete, or were you going into that with the mindset of completion?
1: It, it, as, as always, uh, it started off as compete because it was such a huge event, you know, 250 kilometers running through the desert, entirely self-sufficient, carrying your food and clothes on the back, you know, in temperatures up to 50 degrees. I just thought just getting around, that's going to be a big, uh, big event. But I would say, literally within you know, sort of forty-eight hours of commencing the the sort of the training for that, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe you know, maybe I could do quite well at this. And so, yeah, it, it very quickly became a case of right. I want to I want to compete, and I want to be um, I want to put in a performance. And did you? How did that go? Um, well, you know, with with things, I set myself. I usually set myself on an event like this. I, you know, especially as you get to 50, you know, it's now ever more, almost impossible to compete with the 20 year olds so, you know, I'm now slowly having to accept that, you know, a 20-year-old has just got such a huge advantage over me, although I still try to give them a good run for their money, let, let, let that be said. Um, so, what I normally do is I set myself a bronze, silver, and gold medal sort of target. So, for, for Marathon to Saab, my gold medal target was top 50. That's including the elites as well. So if I was in the top fifty um, overall, all ages, and so on, that would be a gold medal performance. Silver would have been fifty to hundred, and then um, bronze would have been a hundred to hundred fiftieth, and then anything after that would have just been a sort of, you know, also also ran in my my book. And I think I came in fifty fifth, and. That was mainly because on day day two I had major 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 stomach uh, major stomach issues, and having sort of pretty much made top fifty on every other day, that day I came in three hundred fiftieth or something. I was in I was in agony, and I thought my race was over. But I managed to recover the following day. But yeah, that 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 second bad day cost me uh, dearly. And I think that, that, I think that that's the key thing about multi stage events. It's not so much about being being fantastic. It's about just avoiding having a bad day, because a bad day on a multi stage run or a multi stage cycling, you can never make it up. So I think you know doing well is about just being consistent day in day out. Yeah,
0: your, your ability your ability to endure, but also to kind of manage the situation well, so that you you do everything within your control. I mean, sometimes there's bad days that are completely out of your control, right? But if there's certain things that you do that lead to uh, issues. If you eat the wrong things or something that you haven't eaten before, I've done that in races, much smaller than your races, but races before where I've had gel packs or something and they completely disagreed with me and then they completely throw out your performance. You think, well, that was in my control. I didn't have to take that gel pack. I took it knowing that I'd never had one before and that completely screwed up my stomach. So that's interesting. I love that. I think that's a really, a really important uh, suggestion because I can imagine people listening who, you know, maybe start out their adventurous journey as um, completers. They're going into these things saying, look, I just want to go along and achieve something. And and there's a huge amount of value in that. But I think eventually on people's journey, they might get to the point where they say, I could actually do quite well at this. I've been doing it for long enough now. I've got the base conditioning. I love that idea of saying, well, why don't you set yourself a target? Because it is it's hard to go from completer to compete uh, sorry, competer to completer. No, the other way around, completer to competer. Um, knowing that there are a lot of people younger who may be more experienced or more capable than you. Because can you ever really make it into the, you know, the podium or the top twenty? But giving yourself a bronze, silver, gold target is such a great idea. I might take that. Yeah, no, so, yeah, no, it definitely definitely works work, works for me. But as
1: you said, as as we were saying at the beginning. I am now starting to focus more on expeditions and projects where it's just completing. So, like, my, one of my current projects is climbing every 4,000-meter peak in Switzerland by the – well, hopefully concluding that by the end of this year. And that's, you know, that's just a completion exercise. Um, and, uh, but one of, the, one of the problems for me is I always move the goalposts. So I'd set myself this target of climbing every 4,000 meter peak in the, by the time I was 70, because my, my wife's father-in-law who I, who I adore and, and, and look up to hugely, um, at, I think it was in his aged 70, he just just was shy of the summit of Aconcagua, which I think is the highest mountain in the southern uh, in, in South America. And so I said, right, okay, inspired by that, I set myself this goal of climbing every 4,000-meter peak in Switzerland by the time I was 70. As it is, I'm hopefully going to be con- con- conclude it all by the time I'm 52. But, of course, I've now started moving the goalposts because now I'm saying to myself, well, actually, actually, why don't I set myself the goal of every 4,000-meter peak in the Alps by the time I'm 70? So um, I was just worried I was going to have run out of things to do, but I, I think I'm going to be okay.
0: I like that, though. That's, I think there's that... Uh, innate adventurous spirit that's coming out as you start to get towards your goals. You're always, you know, moving the goalposts because you want to continue to achieve more. And I think that's, uh, I think that's exciting. It does, it does lead onto a question that I, I wanted to ask you: um, uh, how you, how you like to train and how you like to do adventures. So for me, I, I'm quite a solo. Tra- I, I like to train on my own. I don't really take great pleasure out of training with other people. I don't know why. Perhaps just because I've become used to training on my own. Um, but I do enjoy adventures and experiences with other people so going on adventures or expeditions with others I really enjoy and I was wondering how how it is for you yeah no that's a that's a good question I, I I would certainly say that I do most of my training on my
1: own mainly because if you have if you train with somebody else you know they're in very you know they may turn up late or and so it just makes organization harder um the second point is this it, it sounds a Slightly arrogant, but you know, when I was training for something like Kona and so on, when I was really at the the top of my game, there weren't many people within my sort of age group or friendship group who would sort of c- could keep up and, and and train at that level of intensity. And I think also a lot of people didn't want to train with me because they you know they, they felt it might make them um, might put them in a spot of difficulty. Um, but I also you know, those sessions on the mountain or on the bike, that's my meditation time. That's my wellness time. That's when I do all of my thinking and getting comfortable with life and so on. So actually, I don't, I don't like necessarily to have, always have company. And um, I also have a very high tolerance for, for monotony. I can, I can ride the same route. I can climb the same hill over and over and over again. I can sit on a turbo trainer and stare at a you know spot on the wall for three, four hours. I, I see it as part of my sort of mental toughness, mental training, I, 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 have, I, I, I have no problem with that. That said, you know, you get a marathon to Saab and you're sharing a tent and these sort of hardship conditions with a group of people you've never met before and those bonds those friendships that you build in that arduous um, environment those are relationships those are bonds that stay with you and i'm still very much in contact with my tent mates from marathon to and you know we're already planning of other events together and so on so you know they they talk about you know the marathon to one of the best aspects of the whole race is is camp life tent life and that is so true. you meet some amazing people on these multi-stage events
0: yeah I uh, it totally resonates with me that's kind of kind of how I feel is I, I the meditative piece of training solo that you mentioned I, that, I totally get that there's a big forest near to me Swindley forest that you may remember from from your childhood and I, I go there trail running for you know hours on end and I like to be on my own because it's it's part of my kind of fire gazing time for want of a better description is where I'm on my own I can think I can be at peace I'm not distracted but I do love being with other people on, on adventure and, and you know maybe suffering together as well there's something quite special about that isn't there and I love the fact that that leads on to finding your tribe
1: yeah and I do and I have. To, I mean I do I do a lot of ski touring ski mountaineering with friends and and long bike rides with friends and, and you know on those long base sessions where you're not pushing yourself you're not in you know sort of um oxygen deficit you know i love the chats and the conversations because you know, i'm not the sort of guy who goes to the pub or goes to the bar and 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 sits there and watches the football and drinks my pints and all the rest of it i do all of my socializing through sport so you know my group of friends here you know will we just shoot the breeze you know on the mountain trails and on the bikes and so on that's 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 where I do my socializing.
0: I love that. So what about what about family time? Do you does your passion for fitness and challenges, is that does that rub off on your family? I mean, I know Katie's very, very active. What about the kids?
1: Yeah, I mean, we I mean in our family there sport is is mandatory. It's not it's not a choice. Um we we basically said, you know, you have to ski because it's one of those sports where if you don't take it up young like I I took it up late in life, you're always playing catch-up. So you you have to swim. Sorry, you have to ski. You have to swim. That was the other one. Because again, I didn't take up swimming until late in life. And, you know, I fight the water when I'm swimming. And that's why I struggled. um, You know, I would struggle to take triathlon to the next level. So the kids had to swim. Um, And the other one is surfing. So basically, if it begins with S, they have to do it. So um, (laughs) uh, Surfing as well. we, we were, we've had them on surfboards since the early stages. And then all of the other things are kind of optional, but those, those were mandatory. They had to be good swimmers, they had to be good surfers, and they had to be good, good uh, skiers. But, you know, my daughter's into boxing, um, which is unusual, but she's, you know, I, we went to see her in her first bout, and the, you know, the grit and determination that she had to keep coming forward of this bigger, older boy, um, despite getting punched in the face, um, you know, made me, made me so proud. And I think some of that grit and determination comes from the fact that, you know, I've, I've taken both of them already, um, before they were both, before they were 10, up 4,000 metre peaks. So they both climbed a 4,000 metre peak. And, you know, I like to think that, you know, they reflect back on some of those moments, you know, those moments of tough hardship on the mountain and say, well, if I can climb, if I can climb a 4,000 metre peak, I can certainly get through, you know, this homework or whatever it might be. So, yeah, we we, we, we I think it's not so much sport, but grit and determination and resilience. I think those are the three words that um, if we if we can give our kids those three things, we we've probably met our our duty of care to our kids. That's great.
0: Well, it sounds like you're doing that in spades. So, Graham, we're coming up on time here, but I did want to touch on one thing that you mentioned earlier. You subtly mentioned your daily journal. And I heard from a little bird that you have been writing a daily journal in Spanish since you were 18 years old. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that, that, is, that is true. Yes, it's 1987
1: when I took a, I took a year off. Uh, before university, and I went traveling and I thought, I oh, know in order to sort of remember those experiences, I will start a, start a diary and uh, and I, I I started writing then, and I never really stopped and then um, Unfortunately, at one point, a girlfriend at the time read my diary because if you keep a diary and you 're honest with it there's always you 're always very fearful of somebody reading it and a and, and girlfriend read my diary. And there were some things in there that perhaps I would have preferred her not to have read. Um, and that caused me a lot, of, a lot of hardship and grief. So I thought, I know, I'll write it in Spanish because I had uh, spent my year off in, in Latin America. So I had a de- decent-ish level of Spanish. So I, I then started, after this incident, writing my diary in Spanish. And unbelievably, even though I don't get to speak a lot of Spanish living in the French part of Switzerland, um you know when I when I do go to Spain or and so on just the fact that I've written a page of a5 every day in Spanish my Spanish is always there so it, it's kept my Spanish alive despite the fact that
0: I never really get to speak it apart from maybe two weeks on holiday fantastic I absolutely love that it's such a such a unique story do you, do you ever look back on what you write in your in your diary I I, I have I've made that mistake a couple of times and and I'm always
1: either cringing with how embarrassing or or, or, or ludicrous I was as, as a youngster, or I'm staggered by how cringeworthily dull my life is. Uh, you know, I, I'm a qualified accountant, heavens forbid. So, you know, the, the diary of an accountant is never gonna be um, hugely exciting, but I would like to think it's maybe a little bit more interesting now. I do a few more adventures, but. Yeah, no, I try. I try not to go back and read it.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm laughing because I, so I'm way, way, way behind you. Certainly, only writing in English, not Spanish. But I started kind of journaling and writing a diary three or four years ago, and uh, I've made the mistake a couple of times early on of going back and reading, <laughs> and it, and cringeworthy is definitely a, a good way to explain it. So now I just I kind of just treat it as as therapy. It's a useful process for me. I put it down on paper, but I never never revisit it it's it's a little bit like therapy if, if you know what i find
1: is if there is something on my mind or i'm worried about something you know i commit it to my diary and the moment it's down on paper and i close that book and i put it next to my bed i
0: sleep like a baby so it definitely it, it definitely serves a purpose that's great um so before we before we finish up i also know from following you on instagram that you're a you're a talented photographer as well is that is that one of the things that you do to unwind or is that something that's starting to get the, the more kind of regimented, disciplined, devoted side of Graham? I, no, well,
1: I, I mean, photography, photography I think was probably the, the career I should have, I should have followed. So when I was young, I was, I, my fo- passion for photography goes back to 12, 13 years of age. I I was, determined to go to art courts art school and study photography and make that my career and um, you know my parents said no 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 go and do a proper degree and and so on and 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 they won that argument and you know i probably would still have followed their advice maybe but uh, there is that sort of sliding doors moment i do wonder whether i would have could have would have could have made it as a, a professional but um, i'm now sort of coming back to it and as i sort of i'm starting to think about retirement and things like that um i'm exploring ways in which photography could be another you know source of income in retirement but certainly i I, my passion for for photography is 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 huge and right now um, i'm obsessed with ice caves i'm really interested in photographing ice clay caves that form at the bottom of glaciers and so Um, only the other day katie and i we went um we went ski touring so we went sort of cross-country skiing we took our full sort of winter camping gear we spent a night under under the stars under canvas trying to find some ice caves which um unfortunately been buried by the snow so we never found them but we still had this beautiful night under the under the stars together so
0: yeah i saw that on instagram and um I mean, the pictures were stunning. I loved the picture that you took at night back, where the tent was all lit up and the the sky and the stars in the background. Um, I showed that to my wife because I have a, a Land Rover Defender, which which is all converted, and we go we go wild camping in that, or I go wild camping in that, trying to get my wife to come along. and I, And that picture inspired her a little bit.
1: Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear it. It's but it's funny. My my kids sort of love the outdoors, and we went camping. Um, just me and, and the two kids and uh, my son is kind of into survival so they decided that they would build a lean-to out of you know wood and branches they put a little bit of tarpaulin on the ground and um, you know they they spent the night outdoors under this lean-to I was there with my tent sleeping bag and sleeping mat um, so they're they're even hardier hardier than I am although my my daughter did eventually come and join me in the tent but only because she couldn't cope with the ants climbing all over her face.
0: But that's that's an amazing experience to offer them. And I'm sure that, you know, bringing up them up in this environment in the Swiss Alps is uh, is adding this kind of adventurous spirit that, that they could, they may keep all the way through their life or they may come back to. One of the things I've talked about on this podcast is that I was really adventurous as a child. And then when I got into my, Uh, younger adult life for kind of work and other commitments, sport, organized sport, or stop me being adventurous. But then I came back to it later on in life because it was still there. It was kind of residual and I was able to tap into it again. So perhaps the same thing may happen with your kids. So we're we're up on time. Uh, Let me just do one final question, if I may. Uh, As you know, uh, because you've been gracious enough to listen to some episodes, uh, 28 Summers is all about living adventurously. And for me, that's not always climbing the highest mountain or, you know, exploring a jungle—it's—it's it's a lot about mindset and just being open to saying yes more and trying things you've not tried before. So, for for anybody listening along who's been inspired by a story, and I'm sure there'll be many, uh, what would be your advice for, for them uh, in terms of living more adventurously? Oh gosh, um,
1: well, I would say I would say the first thing is 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 just get fit because I think for many adventures, the you know the entry price, the entry ticket, is just is just being fit, so I, I would say that's the first thing. It's just just be. Don't have to be like Iron Man fit, but just fit. Um, and then I think the next thing is is just find a really stupid, ridiculous goal. Um, you know, the bigger, the more crazy, uh, the better. But but you know, something where there has to be a risk of failure. I think if it's not if the if there is no risk of failure, it's not an adventure. So something where you could fail. And then for me then I think for me it's take that huge, big, ridiculous goal and chunk it down into sort of manageable bite size pieces, build a plan around those those smaller steps, and then just get on with it. I love that. What?
0: It's perfect. I love it. What great advice and a and a great way to to bring us to a close. Graham, it's been a lot of fun chatting to you, and uh, i've got I've got some great ideas out of this for myself, and uh, just really have enjoyed talking to you and hearing your story, so thanks for taking time. Likewise, Jay, pleasure to speak to you. told you he's dedicated Graham is clearly an impressive athlete but it's his focus and dedication to planning which I think is most impressive that discipline and consistency is often the difference between success and failure and it's clear Graham has mastered the art of setting and achieving his goals I really enjoy chatting with him and particularly love that his focus has changed as he's got older moving away from fastest and furthest to experiences and enjoying the journey a little more you can find Graham on Instagram at Graham Friend. Please give him a follow. His recent ice cave photos are worth it alone. Thanks as always for listening. Your support and feedback just means so much to me. This week, I'm going to ask if you can just take a look at my website, www.28summers.com. It is packed full of surprises and I really hope you like it. That's it from me today. I'll be back next week with another awesome guest. In the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy and remember to live adventurously.